Hey everybody, welcome back to my channel. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you're new here, welcome. If you've been here before, I appreciate you listening so much and thank you so much for all your love and support. So lately, before I start recording my episode, I've been doing a little bit of like a dear diary moment with you guys. So I figured I would continue on that trend and tell you guys a little bit about what's going on in my life right now. My life honestly has been an absolute mess lately. I know I've mentioned it a few times on here before, but about two months ago, my job went fully remote and I was not prepared. When I'm working in Brooklyn and I'm out of the house 14 hours a day, a job working remote is an absolute dream. Like, that's all I want. I don't want to get up and go to work every day. I don't want to take all these hours out of my day. A remote job is perfect, in theory. In practice, it is terrible for me. First of all, I've never had a huge grasp on my mental health. So putting me in a situation where I don't have any distractions, I don't have anything to do, like even my job working remotely, I barely have anything to do. So it's not like I'm constantly busy working at my remote job. So all of this is having a huge toll on my mental health. I have all the disorders that you can have. I have bipolar, borderline personality disorder, anxiety, depression, manic and major depression, PTSD, the whole gambit. Like, so many mental health disorders. I can usually manage this, but I drop pretty deep into the depression side of things when I don't have things to keep my mind busy or distracted. And that's been a huge hurdle to deal with lately. Even doing something like recording this video is just beyond comprehension energy level. Second, my physical health has also been in the toilets. I know I've talked about it briefly on video, and I've talked a little more about it in my live videos, but I did a round of IVF, and after getting the eggs, I felt a lump in my breast. I went to the doctors, and they found seven masses in total. Thank God it isn't cancer, but along with the tumors in my thyroid, my nasal canal, and my uterus, along with cysts all over my body, this is a huge concern for me. I've been going to an oncologist and a hematologist, and pretty much every doctor that you can think of, every specialty I have gone to, and haven't really come up with a definitive answer as to why all of these individual things are happening. One thing is for certain, though, I have absolutely zero energy. I'm not talking about like, oh, I'm always tired, I want to take a nap all the time. No. I'm talking about it is a legit job to lift my arm halfway up. Like, that takes so much energy. They're thinking that's because of how severely deficient I am in iron and vitamin D, and I'm very, very anemic. So tomorrow I'm going to the hematologist to have an iron infusion. I was supposed to go today, but I ended up getting called into work. So I have this iron infusion, and then I have three more scheduled, so hopefully that'll help. And I'm on some crazy amount of vitamin D, but I've been waiting to take it until I start the iron infusion, so now tomorrow I'm going to take the iron infusions, I'm going to start the vitamin D, and hopefully that will help. One way that this has had a gigantic effect on me is that I have absolutely no energy to clean my house. My house is an absolute train wreck, and I have no energy to do anything about it, and I'm in it all the time. So that has a huge impact on my depression, and my depression plunges further into the toilets because of how messy it is, and then I get overwhelmed with how much there is to do, and it seems like an endless cycle, and it's horrible. I haven't been going to therapy since I got to New York. I haven't really established a relationship with a therapist in person, but the therapists at the VA are not great. I just had one therapist call and threaten to send the cops to my house if my husband didn't answer him. And that's the kind of shit that makes me never want to reach out to anybody at the VA. So I'm kind of on my own there. I know I can go to TRICARE. I can go to my PCM and tell them I want a therapist and they'll refer me, but it's just, it's a job, man. It's a lot. <laughs> I know I need to get it done, but it's just, it's another task on my to-do list. And it's most likely not going to get done because I am an unproductive, lazy piece of shit. So yeah, 
That's my life right now. Hopefully next week I'm going to be starting the injections to get the embryo transfer done. And maybe if I have a pregnancy that will give my life purpose and make me want to get up in the morning. But who knows? Okay, so enough about my sob story. I'm sorry for boring you guys. Again, remember that every time I do a video, I do put chapters in. So if you've listened to this entire diatribe and you don't want to listen to it next time, you just want to get into the video, you can always fast forward through it. Just go to the next chapter. It'll be the end of the intro and you don't have to listen to my shit. So let's get on to this week's episode, shall we? Today, I'm going to be talking about a Bolivian drug lord named Roberto Suarez Gomez. He's also known as the Cocaine King, El Padrino, which is the Godfather, and the Benny Robin Hood, which is the Robin Hood of Benny, and Don Roberto. Suarez Gomez was born on January 8, 1932, to a wealthy cattle ranching family in the tropical Beni department of Bolivia. His father was Nicodemus Cattle King Suarez Franco, and his mother was Bianca Gomez Roca. I guess in the area, your first last name is your father's last name, and then your second last name is your mother's last name. So his father's last name was Suarez, his mother's last name was Gomez, so his name is Roberto Suarez Gomez. His father was the descendant of the Suarez brothers, who were also known as the Rubber Barons, who were pretty famous for expanding the rubber trade business worldwide. Like, these guys were a pretty big deal. Suarez was known to the people of Santa Ana that he lived in as Papito, or Daddy, who was the most adored character in the small cattle town, so people loved him. He bought food for the needy, he would restore churches, he hanged colored lights in the plaza around Christmas. So like he was a big member of the community. He would give sewing machines to women so that they could sew clothes for their kids or do costumes for the Christmas things. He would pave local roadways. So he's like kind of like the mayor, but he's just, he's a big deal in the neighborhood. If somebody needs something, they go to Suarez Gomez. When he was a kid, Roberto was a really bright student and he excelled in his studies. He attended school in Cochabamba, the fourth largest city in Bolivia. And while he was in school, he was well known for his intelligence and his leadership skills. He was also a gifted athlete, and he played soccer on his school's soccer team. Things did get hard for him as a kid, though. Like, he didn't just coast through life. In 1946, when he was only 14 years old, his father died. And not only did that have a huge impact on him emotionally, it left his family with a lot of financial hardship. We don't know how many siblings he has. We don't know how many kids are in this family. But we do know he has at least one sibling. Because I see a lot of articles about his nephew. So we know that he has has at least one sibling because he has a nephew, but there is nothing anywhere that talks about how many siblings he had or how many kids his mom was left to raise by herself. So we don't know, but I mean, typically there's a lot of kids in these families. So more than likely she was left on her own to raise a bunch of kids. His father dying had a pretty big impact on Roberto and it motivated him to work hard so that he could help to support his family because all of a sudden, he was the man of the house. He no longer had his father who he could depend on to take care of his mother. Now it was up to him. So now it motivated him to go that extra mile to gain the ability to be able to support his whole family. After he graduated high school, Roberto moved to La Paz, the capital of Bolivia, to attend university. He majored in economics and business administration, and he was a really good student. He had excellent grades. Like, I am 
am talking top of the top Dean's List grades. This man was prepared and he worked really hard. During this time, he also became involved in politics and in college, he joined the Nationalist Revolutionary Movement, which was a left-wing political party. The 16 million acres of farmland that belonged to the family as a whole were used by him mostly. And he used it for farming, for raising cattle, and occasionally he would build airstrips on the land. Outside of his land, he would regularly build things for the community. He built soccer fields, he built hospitals, roadways, and he would even build like churches and restaurants. So he became very well known for providing whatever the town needed. Nicholas Suarez Cael, Roberto's great-grandfather, set up a multinational rubber empire in South America after he and his six brothers crossed the Andes in search of a better home and following rumors that the rubber boom was where they would be able to establish their fortune. Don't mind my voice. My allergies are so out of control that once an hour, my nose just becomes completely impassable. That's another serious set of issues I have. But yeah, so I apologize if I sound nasally. I just have no breath available through my nose. So I sound like a moron. It'll hopefully go away soon. But I'm not stopping recording anymore. I've stopped like three times to try to clear my nose up. And I clear it and then it comes right back. So we're just going to push through, okay? So yeah, the seven brothers together, they established a company named Cachuelia Esperanza. The name was created from another man's frontier trip to Bolivia where Edwin Heath was met with rapids that caused the small canoe that he was in to, like, spin around over and over again. And when he looked up, he saw water, not sky. So, shit is dangerous. Cachuelia Esperanza translates to Rapid of Hope in English, and he coined his journey Cachuelia Esperanza for the sheer fact that he lived through this trip. Since he was one of the first pioneers in the area, establishing routes to the Amazon, he named the river as such. And Nicholas took that name and named it for his business. Heath now goes to Nicholas, and Nicholas is already wealthy, so he's like, bruh, like, you want to make some serious money? Go check out this area that I just discovered. It has routes to the Amazon. It's amazing land. It's right in the middle of where rubber is being produced. You can set up an amazing business. It is perfect. Nobody's ever touched it. You are golden here. So Nicholas and his family all set sail for this location. And once they arrive, they establish the main post for this new company in this location. It provides huge advantages in every way possible, and the location set his company up for exponential success. The company was wildly successful, and it quickly expanded throughout the world. The family together was known as Casa Suarez, and they each set up huge mansions that overlooked the town's river. The company imported huge numbers of foreign workers to work for it, and before you knew it, there is a booming town filled with immigrants from all over the world all working for the Suarez Rubber Company in one way or another. They pretty much built this town, and tourists would come from all over the world to see it. They had opened a hotel, they opened theaters, churches, train routes, restaurants, a hospital, literally everything you could want in a town they opened. Nicholas himself owned 80,000 square kilometers of land in the Bolivian Bene and Pando departments and had 50,000 head of cattle and owned and operated six steamboats which is just, like, beyond crazy. Something I wanted to mention, this is called the Bolivian Bene Department and the Pando Department. And I don't know why. It's called a department rather than, like, a town, a county, an area, anything that the rest of the world usually calls pieces of land. It's called a department. So he has all this land, and it's in the Bolivian Bene and Pando departments, which is, like, I'm guessing towns or counties. I don't even know, but, yeah, departments. So the fact that Roberto comes in, and he is one of the elder of this third generation of Suarez men that pretty much created this town and is now one of the most beloved men in the town, it's not surprising. The family is well-established in the area, and they had been benevolently creating the entire environment in which people lived, worked, and traveled. So the whole family 
was just loved. Like, whoever it was in the family, they were looked upon as, like, I feel like this family was kind of looked upon as, like, Kim Jong-il was looked like, live a hundred years, you know, kind of that kind of shit. According to a cousin who resides in Trinidad, Roberto Suarez Gomez is charming and good-looking and has a flair for exquisite tailoring, amazing clothing, and has a girlfriend for every ranch he owns. And he owns a lot of ranches. Remember, he is a lot different than the other guys that we talk about here. He is already rich. He comes from one of the most powerful families probably on earth. All the other guys that I talk about here, they have to gain notoriety. They have to do a lot of crime in order to get to the point that Suarez Gomez starts out at. And they'll never get there. They will never reach the level of wealth that Roberto Suarez Gomez is at. But my point is, is that he's still a kid here. He had just gone to school. He's still very young. He hasn't done anything yet. But he's out here. He's got cattle ranches and he has a girlfriend for every ranch and blah, blah, blah. So when I'm talking about this, I'm not talking about wealth that was gained from drug dealing or anything like that. I'm just talking about wealth that he has from being from a very successful family. He has the suave, debonair Spanish looks, and he really wants to be an actor. In 1958, Roberto married Adia Levy Martinez, and the two had four children together. Roberto, Gary, Heidi, and Harold Suarez Levy. These two do not stay together for a long time. When they got together, Suarez, I don't know if he was like just getting into the drug trade or he hadn't even gotten into it yet. But either way, like Adia did not go into this marriage looking to be a drug lord's wife. When he started to get into drugs, she left. And they stayed on amicable terms. They co-parented really well. They kept in touch. They would text back and forth. But she just didn't want to be involved in like crime and stuff. Stuff like that. So she left pretty quickly after finding out about the drug trade. But that doesn't mean that Roberto wasn't able to have a part in his children's lives. He did. He had a big part in his kids' lives. Suarez started buying and operating aircraft at first in order to operate his livestock operations. It made it a lot easier. I've seen it in like movies where they use like airplanes to take care of stuff, you know, maybe go get wheat at the next town. I don't know. But that's what he started to buy and operate airplanes for. He began to export coca leaves to Peru and Argentina where they would use these leaves to produce cocaine. His family had been in rubber production for a long time. That is what created the wealth within his family. But when a majority of the public switched over to using synthetic rubber, his family switched over to livestock in order to make a living. Roberto knew, though, that there was a way to make an infinite amount of money, so he started using it. In the 1970s, the Bolivian government started to crack down on the coca industry, and Roberto's business began to suffer. Now, this is a little bit of a murky area, because coca didn't become illegal in Bolivia until 1988. It looks like in the 70s, they began to crack down on the production of cocaine. So chewing on coca leaves, that is kind of like a cultural practice in Bolivia. And it's in a few countries. I think it's in Colombia. There's a few countries where coca leaves are legal. It's just illegal to sell them for the use of cocaine or to produce cocaine and then sell that. Even now to this day, coca leaves are legal in Bolivia and they overturned the ruling. I believe the ruling was placed in 1988 to make it illegal. And then I think, don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure they made it legal in 2004. And that like had a huge impact on their economy. It ended their war on drugs. Like It was a whole big deal. But at the end of the day, it's never been encouraged or allowed to make cocaine, sell cocaine, but they do recognize the use of the coca leaves as a ritualistic religion thing, so they do allow it to a certain extent. 
So it looks like in the 1970s, the Bolivian government started to have an issue with the fact that he was selling a gigantic amount. And it was becoming clear that he was selling it for drugs and not for these ritualistic religious purposes. So in the 70s, when they started to crack down on him and say like, hey, you can't do this, and his business started to suffer, he turned around and he's like, you know what? I'm going against what they're doing anyway. I might as well just make more money doing it. So at this point, this is when he switches over and he starts to build a business within the illegal drug trade. He started to smuggle cocaine into the United States and into Europe, and it was not long before his business grew into one of the largest drug trafficking organizations in Latin America. And it was super easy for this to happen because, again, this man has an endless amount of money to play with. You ever hear of the expression, it takes money to make money? Well, he had an abundance of money to invest into starting up this drug trafficking organization. So whereas some people, most people, start out selling like dime bags and then they work their way up within the organization, he doesn't have to do that. He can just go in and drop down $10 million and start from that point. He doesn't have to build up his wealth. He already has his wealth. So it doesn't take long for his company, his organization to grow. Roberto was one of the first people to take production and distribution of both coca and cocaine and put it into one business. Think of it like car parts and assembled cars. Typically, they're made and distributed by different companies. So like you have the one company that makes the car parts, and then you have the one company that puts the car together, and then there's another company that sells it. There's different companies that do different parts of the production. But one day, a company comes along, and they start to produce each one of these parts of the car, and then they start to put it together, and then they start to sell it. But cars are illegal, so this company just operates illegally. Meet the general motors of drug trafficking. He began dealing cocaine in the 1970s, and he collaborated with Pablo Escobar, a Colombian drug lord, during this time. Now, I actually see Escobar being mentioned as his nephew. I don't see that anywhere else other than one source. I don't think that's true, but I do want to mention that I do see that somewhere. So it is possible that they have some kind of relationship, even though I highly doubt it, and I really don't think it's true. The firm, or La Corpacion, is is the name of the company that he later hired coca growers from Bolivia to join. He had, in essence, a cartel, but he just called it a company because he operated it that way. He didn't operate it like a cartel. He operated it like a corporation, so he called it a corporation. Soon enough, a majority of the Cessna 206 and Douglas DC-3 planes in Suarez's fleet were being used to transport cocaine shipments from the Bolivian Amazon to Colombia, where it was sold for $9,000 per kilogram. And it's a shame, because this man comes from a really good family, and he's intelligent. He's smart enough that he could have had a political career. He could have done so much if he had just invested his intelligence in something else. This man could have been the president of Bolivia or whatever they have. I have no idea what they have. But he could have been the top person there if he had just taken his intelligence and put it towards good and not bad. And the sad part is, is that in this one generation, he pretty much took the family and sunk it. Like, it will never get back the good name that his ancestors had built. And that's a shame because it's purely greed. Like, you had plenty. You didn't need to do this. I can kind of understand people like Pablo Escobar, who come from a point where they eat a grape in a week. Like, okay, you have to drug deal to live? That's a whole different story than, oh, I'm worth millions and millions and I own multiple ranches and I have a girlfriend in each one of them. I just feel like drug dealing. You know what I mean? Like, it's just so, it angers me to see criminals that are criminals because they want to be criminals. Not because they don't have a choice, not because they were kind of like forced into the life or born into the life. No, because you're bored. That's literally what this is. He was bored. He had too much. He had too much money. He had too much 
toys to play with. He had too many planes, too many trains, too many cars, too many houses, and just felt like doing something dangerous, so he did this. In the 1970s and 1980s, Suarez got involved in the drug train and gained a fortune with cocaine. So, like, he was already worth a fortune, but now he is worth a fortune. Like, I'm talking money on money on money on money. And his reputation lived up to the part. He wasn't just known as somebody who had a lot of money and you could screw him over and it wouldn't matter. He had a reputation for his ruthlessness. Suarez was also known for his lavish lifestyle and he spent his money on luxury cars, planes, and mansions. Seven months after he started his cocaine operation, he asserted that he had amassed a million dollars and that the cash had just kept coming. Suarez was now a billionaire drug lord, and he helped to finance a military coup and bankrupt the administration of Bolivia, which led to its downfall. And he did all of this with the assistance of the military dictatorship in Argentina. And now, like, that would be super easy to just say and move on from, but I do want to talk about this for a minute. Now, again, this video has chapters, so if you're absolutely uninterested in any kind of history, the chapters in this video, you can just go to the next one. You don't have to listen to this, but I think it's freaking wild, so I definitely want to go through it before moving forward. So let's talk about this coup. The coup was known as the cocaine coup, and it came after Suarez Gomez had been one of the largest cocaine suppliers in the world. He had amassed his own army of around 1,500 people, and this army contained some of the worst and most vicious human beings alive. His head of security was Klaus Barbie, a famous Nazi war criminal who was known as the Butcher of Lyon. Barbie had served as the head of the Gestapo in Lyon and was known for having personally tortured prisoners, primarily Jewish and French resistance citizens. The U.S. decided that Barbie could be used, despite the arrest warrant that France already had out for him, and they used him briefly for anti-communist work that they were doing. And then they aided his escape to Bolivia in 1972, which they later came out and publicly apologized to France for in 1983. I swear to God, if you look back at the history of what the United States has done, it will blow your freaking mind how every country in the world has not come to destroy us. But realistically, France does not have an army or any kind of military that could stand a chance against America, so they really just had to take it on the chin. As much as they probably did want to annihilate us for that, they really couldn't do anything. So when Barbie got to Bolivia with the aid of the United States government, he started to work for Suarez. Under Suarez, he is credited as having a huge role in the Bolivian coup d'etat. While he was working with Suarez, he was working as an emissary between the governments of Germany and the United States and the Suarez cartel. The coup was orchestrated after the Bolivian government pretty much got tired of taking the bribes from all of the drug dealing going on in the country. They got tired of looking the other way, and they turned around and they're like, yeah, we don't want your money anymore. We're arresting all of you, and we're putting a stop to this drug trade. This is crazy. I don't care how rich you are. I don't care how powerful you are. You're going to jail. This drug dealing is going to stop. Now, the huge drug lords of the area did not take this well. You're about to lose everything. And Suarez banded together with multiple other wealthy Bolivians to overthrow the government. So Suarez pretty much turns around. He's like, oh, you're not going to let me lead my illegal cocaine trafficking company anymore? Okay, cool. You're not going to be a government anymore. But the thing is, Suarez wanted no part of being president. He didn't want to lead. He did not want that headache. He just wanted to deal his drugs. So he goes out and he finds Luis Garcia Meza Tejada, a career military officer who believed in civilian rule. And he put him in place as the dictator of Bolivia. On July 17th, 1980, General Garcia Meza Tejada led Suarez's army, as well as an army unit supplied by Argentina, in a slaughter of dozens of intellectuals, citizens, and figures of power at every level. The sitting dictator, Lydia Gieler, Tejada's cousin, fled the country, and Tejada took place as the dictator-slash-president of Bolivia. 
The following year after this coup is known as one of the darkest periods of Bolivian history, where arbitrary arrests of anybody that displayed even the least bit of resistance to the government was normal. Citizens would disappear and be tortured and killed on an everyday basis. To put that into perspective, every person that you go on TikTok and you see them talking shit about the United States government, oh, Biden sucks, he's terrible. Me, I'm on here on a regular basis saying the cops are terrible, don't trust them, don't trust the government, like I'm saying some nasty shit on here. I would be kidnapped, tortured, and killed. Any of those TikTok people that you see that are trying to tell you this is bad, don't listen to the cops, don't listen to the president, like fight against this, people fighting for rights, all of those people dead. Hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people were killed in this one year that this man had leadership. And this was all just so Roberto Suarez Gomez could continue his billion-dollar cocaine trade. After the coup was completed, Suarez put his cousin, Luis Arc Gomez, in place as the interior ministry under the dictatorship that had been imposed. And as a result, he gained a lot of political security. Like, he did not have to worry about being arrested. He didn't have to worry about any of his shipments getting picked up. Like, nothing. He had to worry about nothing. During the period after the coup, between 1980 and 1981, which, by the way, put that into perspective, most millennials were born in the early 90s, late 80s, okay? Most of the people listening to this video were born within... 10, 15 years of this, okay? This is not that long ago. 1980 is only 40 years ago. So 40 years ago, this is going on. So between the period of 1980 and 1981, during Meza's regime, cocaine exports totaled $850 million, which was twice what the rest of the country exported of anything else other than cocaine. That $850 million would be $3.1 billion in today's money. Think about that. That means that every car that was exported, every piece of sugar, everything that was exported from the country of Bolivia. You take that, take the entire thing that's exported from Bolivia, double it, and that's what's being exported from Bolivia in cocaine. That is absolute insanity. And it's in 1980. It's not like this long time ago. Like, a lot of people listening to this video were alive during this time. So I just found that super interesting. If you ended up fast-forwarding or going to the next chapter and not listening to that, it was a wild ride. So I hope that if you don't have anything going on, you're not busy, you give it a chance to listen to that because it was a wild ride. <laughs> In the late 1970s, Suarez met Pablo Escobar, who was then a small-time drug dealer in Colombia. Escobar was pretty much looking for a reliable source of cocaine, and Suarez was looking for a new market for his product. He has all the product in the world. He has all the money in the world. He has all the clearance from government in the world. He's just looking for new places to sell it. So Escobar and Suarez, they're a match made in heaven. And again, I did see them listed in a few places as relatives. I don't think so, but I did see it, so it's possible that they're relatives. They quickly formed a partnership, and that would change the course of the world drug trade, the history of drug trade in the world. Suarez became the main supplier of cocaine to Escobar's Medellin cartel, and in return, Escobar would help Suarez to launder his money, make his money clean, and expand his business, and move into more territories. The two became really close friends and good business partners, and Suarez even named one of his sons after Escobar. So this relationship was really tight. Their relationship was based off of a mutual benefit and mutual respect. Suarez admired Escobar's ruthlessness and business acumen, and Escobar, he really valued Suarez's reliability and his connections in the drug trade, and obviously his unlimited amount of money. The majority of the cocaine that reached the United States during that decade, so the decade of 1980 to 1990, and even 1970 to 1980, but mainly 1980 to 1990, the majority of the cocaine that reached the United States is said to have been supplied by Suarez Gomez, who continued to grow his activities. Like, he didn't slow down, he didn't stop, he just kept going and going and going. Because of Escobar's 
violent actions during the 1980s, Suarez's relationship with Escobar started to deteriorate because Suarez, he wasn't really a violent person. Violence was kind of a last resort. He has all this money. He has this cushy little government set up. He doesn't really have the need for violence. And Pablo Escobar is over here just chopping heads off for no reason. So that level of violence and kind of just like craziness, it turned Suarez off. So their relationship just started to dissipate. It wasn't going on anymore. Their relationship also became strained when Suarez started to feel like Escobar was taking over too much control of the business. At the end of the day, Suarez is really the one bankrolling this. And Escobar is kind of stepping on his toes, like thinking that he has more power in the relationship. He started to worry that Escobar was becoming too powerful and that he couldn't trust him anymore. They eventually parted ways after their friendship just deteriorated. Nothing happened. Nobody died. It wasn't a war. They just stopped working together. And after that, Don Roberto Suarez Gomez, he just kind of like basked in his good fortune. He was once reported by the Bolivian media boasting about having $400 million in the bank and 40 airplanes. He had acquaintances in high high-ranking positions, and he owned more than six sizable, like, big cattle ranches. Okay, so if I look a little different or you notice something different, I had to stop filming yesterday because I straight up could not breathe. So I had to leave my house so that I could start to breathe again. And then I didn't start filming again last night. So I went this morning. I got my iron infusion. I did live through it. A little bit of a traumatic experience. You go in with people that are receiving chemo and it feels like a similar medication. You get up, you're lightheaded, you're nauseous, you have a really bad headache. It's just, it's not fun. But I did get a boost of energy later on, and I'm feeling a lot better right now than I normally do. So I'm feeling good. I'm feeling optimistic about it. So anyways, let's keep going with this video. So Roberto Suarez's downfall started when he met Michael Levine, a DEA special agent, and Michael Levine was in command of covert operations in southern Cone in 1980. Levine was living in Buenos Aires, Argentina, when he met Roberto Suarez Gomez. The undercover agent described how Suarez was introduced to him as a Spanish-speaking mafioso from the U.S., and he had himself introduced to Suarez by a confidential informant. Michael Suarez explains all of this in his best-selling novel, The Great White Lie. The drug master was regarded as the largest supplier of cocaine and coca based raw product on earth among international drug traffickers, but he was also completely unknown to the DEA in America. When he went back and told the DEA, like, hey, this dude is the biggest supplier of that, 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 they were like, um, okay, that's cool. They were pissed because initially they didn't even want to give Levine any money to do this operation in which he's trying to uncover the biggest cocaine dealers in the world. So now when he goes back, he's like, hey, I just found the biggest cocaine cocaine dealer on the planet. So thank you all for all of your support in the beginning of this. You know, eventually they got on board because Suarez was the biggest cocaine dealer in the world, but they did not like it at first. So Levine and Suarez agreed to the largest undercover drug deal in history. So now obviously Suarez has no idea that this dude's undercover. He has no idea that the guy that he's getting introduced to him is a CI. He has no clue. So they set up a drug deal, which Suarez doesn't know he's setting history. He just sets up a big ass drug deal. So they set up this drug deal involving the sale of 1,000 pounds of cocaine. And this 1,000 pounds of cocaine is to be delivered to Levine in South Florida. This agreement came after days and days of negotiations in South America, but it will just go to show you that he had no fear of getting a thousand pounds of cocaine into America. There was no part of him was like, well, can we get it? Like, no, he wasn't scared. He just needs somewhere to put it. He has all this cocaine. He has a way to get it there. He just needs a place to drop it. Levine and his team at the DEA also uncover that the CIA 
has been working with Suarez all this time, and they have been shielding him from prosecution and detention. So it's like wild to them because the CIA, that's an American thing. Like the CIA is from America and they have been working with Suarez and nobody in America even knows that Suarez exists. And this is why, because they are working with him. They are keeping him out of jail. They're keeping him under the radar so that nobody's ever heard of him and he can continue being the largest cocaine dealer in the world. The CIA's involvement in the bloodiest revolution in Bolivia's history, because everybody knows that Bolivia just went through this. Everybody knows that Suarez has something to do with this. They didn't know that he was a cocaine dealer, but they knew that he was a rich person and they knew that he had a huge hand in Bolivia's overthrow in their coup d'etat. And now they know the CIA was involved and that gets written down by the DEA. So remember in the beginning of the episode, I said, there's nowhere that says that Roberto has any brothers or sisters. I have no idea. But what I do know is that he has a nephew and this is where his nephew is going to come in. So his nephew, who is named Alejandro, and he also has the name Suarez, they had always been close. Roberto and Alejandro, boys, okay? These guys are tight, tight, you know, dabbing it up like fucking boys. So in addition to them being boys, obviously that means that Roberto is going to give Alejandro a nice little cushion job within his organization. He took him under his wing. He made him his number two. He taught him the ropes. Like this boy was groomed from birth to make a career in the drug dealing world. Now remember, Roberto does also have children of his own, but like nephews and sons and daughters, like same thing. Alejandro is somebody that makes Roberto actually really happy. He just has a different personality. Like he has that magnetic personality that like when you're around him, you just kind of have a more lighthearted feel. And Roberto really liked that. So again, he does have his own kids, but he keeps Alejandro close because he's obviously he's his nephew. But on top of that, he just makes him happy. They laugh together. Things are going to go wrong. So definitely have your red flags up about this man. So he doesn't know anything is going to go wrong with Alejandro yet. Again, at this point, they're just boys. They love each other. Alejandro makes him happy. So now in order to get experience for Alejandro in the business world, Roberto is just kind of walking him through it. Like if you ever saw Godfather 2, the way that the Godfather is just kind of walking his son-in-law through it, even though he has his own kids, he has his son-in-law that he's putting in place. That's what's going on here with Alejandro. And Alejandro is all for it. He is dying for the chance to be given a chance. He wants to succeed in the drug dealing world. He wants to succeed in the business world. Like he just wants to be someone. But one day the red flags start to show and Roberto finds out that Alejandro had been stealing from him. Alejandro had been embezzling money from Roberto's bank accounts for months. And now Roberto knows it. When Roberto confronts him, Alejandro is like, no, absolutely not. I love you. I would never steal from you. Me? No. Never. No, uncle, no. And Roberto loves Alejandro. So even though it's in black and white and he could see it clear as day, he's finding it hard to believe it. He's finding it hard to comprehend it. It's one of those like, well, maybe someone's setting him up. Like, it's so freaking clear that it can't be this clear, you know? He doesn't want to believe it. But at the same time, it's very clear. So he makes a decision to fire him from the business and kind of distance him from the drug world, but not go out for his life. Under normal circumstances, Roberto would come, like if it was anybody but his nephew who he loved so much, he would come for his throat. But he kind of was just like, all right, I got to put some distance here. I got to fire you. I got to push you away from me, but I'm not going to come at you. I'm not going to attack you. I'm not going to have you jump, nothing like that. So Alejandro is out of the business. And now Roberto is feeling very betrayed. He feels like he has been deceived by one of the closest people in the world to him. He can't fathom why his nephew would steal from him. Because you got to think, his nephew, he grew up in this family too. Even not from the drug money, this is one of the richest families in this country. There is no need for him to steal. And it got to him so much that he decided that he was going to have Alejandro detained. And he had Alejandro detained 
sentence for theft, and he pressed charges against him. And now he's devastated by this. You know, like, Roberto does not want to see this happen. Family is very important to him, but he needs to see this through. Honestly, I don't know what is going on here. If you read about it, it says, like, oh, well, you know, he wanted to act morally. No, the fuck he didn't. Come on. Who are you talking to? This is the biggest cocaine dealer in the world. This is not, oh, I want to act morally. No. There's something going on here that we don't know. We'll figure it out together. Hopefully. We'll get at least a theory. But no, something's going on here. I don't know why he had him arrested. But it's not because he wanted to act morally. No. So in order to stop any future theft from happening, he puts a lot of security procedures in place and he just tightens up his ship a lot. And this affected Roberto so badly that he actually reached out and sought out treatment. I feel like this might have some kind of karma in it. I don't know why, I just feel like this next story has a little bit of karma because he had his nephew detained for theft, right? And we know it's not because he was acting morally. We don't know why he had his nephew detained, but he had his nephew detained. And then all of a sudden, in 1981, Roberto gets a call that his son, Roberto Robbie Levy, has been detained in Switzerland and is being extradited to the United States. And now Roberto freaks out. He's like, oh shit. Like, because any drug dealer knows that anytime the United States gets involved, it's bad. It's really bad. Like, look at El Chapo. El Chapo was on the run for, what, like 30, 40 years, something crazy like that? He escaped prison three, four times, and the one time the United States got a hold of him, that's it. He's done. He's in a United States prison for the rest of his life. I was in Brooklyn, like, right next to the prison that he was in, and the U.S. does not play. You don't escape from prison in the United States. It doesn't happen. So they know, like, shit, this boy is done. He's screwed. I gotta do something. So Roberto turns around and he reaches out to the sitting president at the time, Ronald Reagan. Suarez wrote a letter to the U.S. sitting president, Ronald Reagan, and offered to pay $3.8 billion to completely eliminate the foreign debt. And all he wanted in exchange for that was amnesty for himself and his son. Now, obviously, Reagan cannot do that. It is absolutely asinine, cannot accept that offer. However, something did go down because the U.S. government will stand behind the fact that this request was officially made. And while they did decline the proposition, later on, Robbie was actually acquitted of all charges and released from prison in November of 1982. So I don't know if Suarez ended up actually paying the billions of dollars to get him out of jail, but somehow this boy did not rot away in a basement of a U.S. jail for the rest of his life. So something went down. Something went down between Suarez and the United States because there's no way. There's no way this kid got out of jail. No way. So yeah, I'm gonna say that he offered to pay an asinine amount of money and they accepted and they moved forward. If you've ever seen Snowfall, I fully believe in that. And you've already got the CIA agent and you've already got the drug dealer. Now put on top of that the DEA, the FBI, and the U.S. government itself getting involved because now they just released his son when more than likely his son probably should have spent the rest of his life in jail. So I don't know what went down. They don't release it, but something went down. Fidel Castro and Raul Castro extended an invite to both Suarez and Pablo Escobar and invited them to visit Cuba in January of 1983. And the only reason that we know that this communication was had was because Adia Levy, she is the ex-wife. She wrote a book about her time with Suarez, and she wrote that in that book. That will tell you something about the amount of power that this man has on a global scale that Castro is reaching out to him and be like, hey, you want to come chill? Like, come to Cuba. I'll show you a good time. Castro had started reaching out to these top-tier drug dealers because he wanted to utilize narcotics as a weapon against Yankee 
imperialism. Well, I do think that Pablo Escobar did end up going on to make more money, and he definitely amassed a much bigger reputation. It is acknowledged in Colombia to this day that the Colombians really never knew anything at all about cocaine until the Bolivians and the Peruvians came around and taught them. So Pablo Escobar, he's kind of just a result of Roberto Suarez. Suarez is very little known. Like, most people haven't ever heard of him. I never heard of him until I started looking into him for this. But I know who Pablo Escobar is, and I know who El Chapo is. Things started to go downhill for his drug trade after price negotiations started to turn both the people within his own corporation, as well as his biggest buyers, against him. Suarez called his little cartel-type business a corporation because of the way that he incorporated every aspect of the business of selling cocaine into what he did. The production of the plant, the production of the paste, the production of the cocaine itself, and then the distribution of the cocaine, all into one inclusive business. Any aspect of that business being disrupted would have detrimental effects on his business as a whole. The coca paste, a mixture of coca leaves, kerosene, sulfuric and hydrochloric acid, and bicarbonate soda, which is then refined into pure cocaine, and normally that's done in Colombia, that costs about $14,000 per kilogram in 1984. And this is Suarez's main product. He was the largest seller of this paste in the world. So while a lot of other cocaine dealers may have eclipsed him in sales, nobody touched him in terms of this paste. The price was subsequently unilaterally reduced to $9,000 per kilogram because other people started to learn how to do it. Suarez Gomez was absolutely not on board with that, and he demanded the higher price or he would not sell his product. But the problem is, by this point, other people are able to produce this. He's not the only one anymore that's able to produce this and supply it. He delayed supplies from a very sizable stockpile that he had. And now, while this is going on and he's delaying supplies and there's a national shortage of cocaine, because he's delaying the stockpile that he has, his nephew, Jorge Roca Suarez, and other lieutenants within his business, they turn around and they start negotiating with the Colombians directly. They go behind his back and they end up agreeing to the reduced price. After this coup from the corporation and all of his lieutenants going behind his back and absolutely screwing him, he takes an enormous loss on this huge stockpile that he has. As his old lieutenants assumed control of the trade, his business ended up dwindling. This dude just gets screwed by any nephew that he lets into the business. Alejandro is stealing from him. Jorge pretty much led a coup within his own corporation, took his business away from him. Like, he should have just kept any children of any siblings far away from this business. In his dealings with Castro, for providing coverage to the trafficking of cocaine and for the use of the airports and the aircrafts and refueling and providing protection for all of the services that Castro provided to him, he demanded a million dollars per day. That overhead is probably why he was so hesitant to agree on a lower amount for the paste. That's a huge cut. That's almost a 50% cut. Suarez would go on to strengthen his own private army because, remember, he has this private army that he had fought in the coup with. So he has this army, and he strengthens it to about 1,500 soldiers. He has a private air force. He has bodyguards that were trained in Libya, and he starts to strengthen the team below him and move away from Castro because that's a huge price, this million dollars a day. And now he has this deficit because he just lost his stockpile because of his nephew. And everything just seems to go down at once. 
On July 20, 1988, Suarez was detained by the Bolivian National Police after a raid on his property turned up more than one and a half tons of cocaine. Now, you gotta think that this arrest stems from everything that just happened. His nephews turned against him and started selling the paste at a lower price to his buyers. So there is now new people that will step in and provide the service that he's providing, but for a lower price. Castro probably dropped him when he strengthened his own army and wouldn't or couldn't pay this million dollars a day. So now all of a sudden, after operating all this time and being known as the largest producer of this coca paste and one of the largest cocaine dealers in the world, but not being known by most of the governments, now all of a sudden after all of that success, he's arrested? This is not a coincidence. Things didn't just happen out of nowhere. This was a direct result of the two falling outs that he had prior to this. After a trial, Suarez received a 15-year prison sentence at the San Pedro prison for narcotics trafficking. He only ended up serving seven of those 15 years. I've seen different reports. I've seen two and I've seen three, but he had either two or three heart attacks while he was in prison and his health was declining. So after getting reports of good behavior and also having deteriorating health, he was released in 1996. Jorge Roca Suarez, Roberto Suarez's nephew, took over the drug trade. When Roberto got out of jail, Jorge was actually serving a 30-year prison sentence. Jorge has been in and out of jail. He escaped prison during a 10-day pass. Like, it's been a whole drama, but he was arrested in 2021 and currently is in jail. Roberto's attorney, Maria Teresa Montano, said that Roberto has 18 children from several wives and that his last wife deserted him some time ago. I think this is more of a plea for sympathy. His wife didn't abandon him. I talked about her multiple times on this episode. They remained on really good, amicable terms. That's just the first wife who he had Roberto, Gary, Heidi, and Harold with. I don't know about the rest of the wives and the rest of the kids. I have no idea, but I know that this first wife that the lawyer said abandoned him, she didn't. After his first arrest in July of 1988, he was paraded in front of the media. Like, he was arrested and, like, brought around in handcuffs. They made sure that everybody knew that Bolivia had caught the big bad wolf but he was never allowed to respond to any questions. He was kept very quiet because supposedly he had really close ties to several government officials. It was also reported that he financed some of Paz's revolutionary Nationalist Party campaign in 1985. Herman Antello, Bolivia's then information minister, utilized Suarez's arrest to boost Bolivia's reputation as like a society that takes drug-related crimes seriously because Bolivia is known as the cocaine police, as the drug police. So when they arrested Roberto Suarez Gomez, they were like, oh, look, we take drugs seriously. You guys look at us as a cocaine producer, but that's not what we are. Herman mentioned in his statement that Suarez's arrest was not an accident or a coincidence, but it was part of a political choice and part of a drug-battling campaign. Suarez even provided journalists with advice on how he believed that the government should approach the nation's drug issue. And he was allowed to talk to journalists after a while. And in 1989, he spoke with journalists and told them like, well, I think that the government should handle drug dealing like this and just pretty much laid out like a plan on how the Bolivian government should handle drug dealers and the national drug issue. He was later released on bail after completing half his sentence in three different prisons. He was released after he found religion in jail and he was like often captured next to pictures with Jesus and it was just a campaign that was ran to booster his reputation before letting him out of jail. And he expressed a lot of regret for his crimes. He did an interview with a neighborhood TV station and in this interview he admitted that his involvement in cocaine trafficking was the biggest mistake that 
he had ever made in his entire life. On March 22, 1990, his son, Roberto Robbie Suarez Levy, the one that had been arrested in the U.S. and the $3 billion offer was made, he was killed in a gunfight with a police officer. Robbie, who was 31 years old at the time of his death, had been involved in three attacks. The last attack involved the home of DEA agent Robert Johnson, and that attack ended with no injuries. There's not really any word on what went down on the first two attacks, but I would assume it had something to do with police officers if the third attack was a police officer. After his little crime spree, Bolivian police and DEA agents went to arrest him, and during the arrest, Lieutenant Mario Vargas shot Robbie in the stomach, which ultimately killed him, after he he had been gravely injured himself. Roberto Suarez Gomez, that was his son, so now this is him. So he is portrayed in the movie Scarface as Alejandro Sosa, who supplies Tony Montana with cocaine. The character is portrayed as an elegant, educated landowner. And even like the actual name of his town is given in the movie. It's the only character that's based on a real person. They talk about his family, they talk about his Bolivian trade routes, and they pretty much make it clear who they're talking about in the movie. Roberto wrote an autobiography, and he invited a Bolivian writer, Edmundo Paz Soldan, to his house to read and review this autobiography that he had written. Soldan told him that it was boring, and nobody would be interested in reading it. Like, don't even bother wasting your time. It's boring. Because in this autobiography, he framed himself as an entrepreneur and a cattle rancher. And in this autobiography, he makes little to no reference about his dealings in narcotics. And Soldan is like, honestly, if anybody's going to read your autobiography, it's going to be to read about the cocaine industry and you're not writing anything about it. So don't bother. Roberto Suarez Gomez died in the early hours of the evening of a heart attack on Thursday, July 20th, 2000 in Santa Cruz, Bolivia. So that is all I have on Mr. Roberto Suarez Gomez, the infamous Bolivian drug leader. So let me know your opinion on Roberto Suarez Gomez. Do you think he deserves to be as well known as Pablo Escobar and El Chapo? Personally, I think he was a spoiled little rich kid who wanted some adrenaline so he got involved in drug dealing. And he kind of ruined his family name with the bullshit that he pulled. Not a huge fan. Like he could have easily not done that. But I do appreciate that he had such a large scale drug operation and honestly, throughout my entire video, did we talk about any acts of violence? I don't think we talked about any violence at all surrounding his reign. I have an entire episode written up already of El Chapo, and I haven't made it yet because there is so much to it that I know it's going to be a two-part video, and I don't know if everybody's going to stay interested, especially because it's so gruesome and bloody. Like, this man was so violent and ruthless. So to see Roberto Suarez go as this big-time drug dealer that never got involved in violence, it's a good thing to see. Suarez did as much as he did without the stories of brutality and violence. In fact, in the 1980s, there were only five murders in the entire country of Bolivia, and none of them were credited to Suarez. So, like, I appreciate that. Yeah, I think he's a spoiled little rich kid that messed up and should never have gone into drug dealing in the first place. But at the same time, if you're going to be a drug dealer, this is the way to do it. Not hurting or killing anybody along the way. Like, I appreciate that. Join me next week as I continue to review the lives and legacies of some of the world's most notorious gangsters and mafiosi. Until then, please don't forget to like, share, subscribe, follow, do all the things, and I'll see you next week. Bye!